Hello and welcome to AI Studios. Today with us, we have Javier Tordablo. Hey, Javier, welcome. Hi, Natalia. Thank you for having me. Javier is a technology executive. Um, he is a technical director uh, at the CTO office uh, at Google Cloud, where he drives long-term strategy for Google Cloud. And he's been at Google for 15 years. He has a wealth of experience, a lot of it in AI, which I'm really excited to discuss and go deep into today. So welcome. I'm really excited about this conversation, Javier. Um, Thank you. I also have to say, I love your Instagram post. I know <laughs> you have the best taste in food. Uh, what's your favorite Seattle Thank restaurant? Thank you so much. Oh, yeah. You know, actually, I used to have, um, I used to have a whole bunch of favorites that closed during COVID, unfortunately. Oh, so no. many of those are not really uh, open anymore. But I like, um, uh, I like Japonesa, for example, in, in Union. Uh, has really nice sushi with, uh, you know, Spanish-inspired uh, rolls. That one was very nice. Uh, I like Lola. It's a little bit more of a Mediterranean, Middle Eastern kind of, you know, flavor. Uh, and yeah, I mean, I used to have a bunch more, but, uh, you know, I haven't really gone out that much in, in sale uh, lately. Uh, but thank you. You know, I, you know, I enjoy posting about food uh, on Instagram instead of, you know, how my day yeah. is going, right? Or like, you know, memes or like whatever, you know, you know, I'm a that, you huge, know. huge foodie as well. Um, the only one I recognize is Lola. I haven't been to Seattle mm -hmm. in a while, but it's, it was always one of my favorites. Um, yeah. So tell us a little bit about your journey through life. You've had an amazing career, 15 years at Google. Uh, we actually met at Microsoft when yep. I think both of us were working on Bing at the time, like way back, yes. 2010, maybe, nine, oh, something. Oh, earlier, like. earlier. It must have been yeah. 2008 or 2009. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah so uh, I, uh, so my background is actually in, in computer science and, and mathematics, which is what I studied back in Spain. Um, they came to sell to work for Microsoft. Uh, I was lucky to work a, in uh, Bing. Uh, which was doing interesting stuff at the time. And uh, back then is when I started to get very interested in AI. Uh, and this was mostly AI for ranking, uh, for search. So traditional information retrieval and, and ranking. And I was there for a couple of years. Uh, I think it was, a, it was a very nice experience, but uh, at some point I had the chance to switch uh, and uh, I came over to Google. Uh, Were I'm you actually working, working on, I'm sorry to interrupt. Did yeah. you actually work on rel or on ranking? That's yes. what you Yeah, so on? I was in uh, Andy Lush's team uh, back in the day, which was the uh, core ranking team. Got it. Okay. I was the yeah. whole page relevance team. I, I don't know if you recall that used to be like, um, I don't remember that. That was answer, like indexing. Yeah. Answers. No, 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 no. This is like a lot more front end, like nav navigational query classifier, entity cards, more of like oh, yep. taking the front end experience from 10 blue links to a rich, uh, media rich experience that integrated uh, yeah. images and videos and et cetera. And yeah, all that yeah. stuff. So, so you were like the hardcore um, stuff. <laughs> Yeah, no, it was the uh, yeah, it was a little bit more kind of in between, right? But I would say yeah, probably closer to uh, to uh, you know that uh, you know core uh, information retrieval part of it. Yeah. Um, 
but to be honest, right, like back in the day, I was very junior, right? So I, I didn't really have a good idea of, you know, the, the end-to-end of like how, you know, things are assembled into a, a final product. Uh, to me, it was later when I was at Google where I kind of started developing, you know, that, that ability to see things, uh, you know, a little bit more broadly. Um, so, but when I switched, uh, I started in search as well, uh, went over to, uh, what was called at the time webmaster tools. It was basically like Google analytics, but for, you know, website owners did that for a few years, then moved over to ads, uh, which was a very interesting, uh, experience as well, kind of, you know, seeing things from the other side of the, of the search experience. Uh, and then, uh, I was lucky to move on to, uh, to another team that was called, uh, supply chain. So basically completely different, uh, you know, working on infrastructure for Google's own supply chain, like procurement of uh, components for machines that we run in data centers, uh, very, very different from what I was doing before. And then finally I joined cloud about six years ago, um, where most of my work is actually client facing as opposed to building software. So mostly helping other companies leverage cloud, leverage AI for their own purposes. So, you know, my experience, I think over the first, uh, you know, maybe like 10 years was more as a practitioner. Uh, and then the past, you know, five, six years has been mostly helping other people leverage technology for their own goals. Yeah. So tell us, let's go deep into your role there, because that is really interesting to me. Um, how, like, what is the, uh, life cycle of a project look like for you? Do you have projects or do you work on products? How does, I, and, you know, I, you know, tell us whatever you can share. Um, I'm mm -hmm. just curious because, you know, I, I come from like, pro, it's always product. Although yeah. I have worked at enter, with enterprise as well, which I thought was amazing because I really enjoyed talking to customers. Um, so how much do you define the product? It sounds like you do a lot of the strategy. How much do you do the customer engagement? What does your role look like? Give us a little bit more detail. Yeah, so it's it's a little bit of a hybrid role and uh, not so much working on individual products, but uh, uh, part of my role consists in working with the engineering teams on the product offering for a set of customers. So for example, I'm very closely involved with uh, healthcare and life sciences. Um, I work with a lot of customers within the healthcare vertical. So I have a little bit of an idea of what kinds of things are important for customers within that, that vertical. So I work with uh, you know many of the product managers and, and the folks within engineering to make sure that our product offering for that specific industry is, is, is solid and competitive. But I would say yeah. the majority of my work, you know, so, you know, two thirds or, or three quarters of my job is customer facing. So working directly with customers on, on their own specific projects. Uh, and sometimes that uh, translates into helping with uh, projects that they have or helping with products that they're trying to get on the market. And sometimes it's uh, a little bit broader uh, and consists in helping them define their own strategy. So for example, uh, one of the, one of the customers that I work with uh, before being in the healthcare vertical is uh, Unity, the, uh, the game, uh, uh, you know, tools and, and infrastructure company. Uh, so I work with them for a about three years, right? And and, uh, and that collaboration included a, a lot of different things, you know, relating to um, how they could run some of the products on top of Google Cloud infrastructure, have a good partner in order to offer a joint product to, to another third-party customer within the gaming industry. Um, uh, we worked on um, 
you know, helping leverage some of the, you know, the infrastructure that we're building inside of Google Cloud as, as part of their, uh, as part of the product offering, uh, and many other things, right? And now we have, you know, I would say Google Cloud and, and Unity have a very close partnership with, you know, Unity, for example, offers, uh, you know, some of their, uh, uh, SaaS products, uh, within the Google Cloud marketplace, right? Um, so a lot of that stuff, you know, started around, uh, Around the time that I was uh, that I was working with them, and, and over the past few years, I've been focusing mostly on healthcare and life sciences. You know, some of those collaborations I can talk about. Uh, you know, some of others you know, can't say much yet because they are not they're not public yet. Yeah, I'm gonna go back and ask you a more generic question, but I always love yeah. to hear how people think about this. Just last night, I was I was listening to this talk on applying military tactics to tech strategy, like military strategy, taking all of those ideas and translating it into tech strategy. How do you, what are your tips for defining strategy when you, when you work on defining one or, you know, putting that together? So I, I wouldn't necessarily think in terms of, you know, an overarching framework that can be used. I know there's, there's a whole bunch of different frameworks that people have been using for, you know, for, for a long time. Uh, you know, strengths and, and, and opportunities and threats and so on and so forth, right? Or, or you know, or five forces or, you know, there's a whole <laughs> bunch of different frameworks. But I would say the way that I think about it is first trying to understand what what the customer, what my customer or what their customers want to do, right? Like, you know, what are the problems that they're trying to solve? And then finding opportunities that there may be a good fit between what the technology or what the organization can help provide and, and what those customers are looking for. So, you know, for example, um, within within healthcare, right? Like this is something that, that comes up all the time. You know, uh, when you when you talk with uh, different companies within the healthcare space, you know, each company may have different incentives. Yeah, so for example, if you talk with uh, with an insurance company, you know one of the problems that they're trying to solve is how to process claims more effectively. You know, right now they may have you know large organizations of people that manually look at claims and try to review things and and so on and so forth, and that carries a cost, of course, because there have to be uh, a set of employees that look at all those things. Sometimes they make mistakes, and you know, they have to go back and forth. So you could go and say, well, you know, there. You know, uh, as an organization, one of the problems that they're dealing with is is the cost of providing the, the services that they do. So, um, so then you can walk backwards and think, you know, what kind of technology do we have right now that can help automate some of those processes or or alleviate you know some of the mistakes that that humans may make and so on and so forth. And then we kind of you know identify you know what are the key opportunities for providing that technology uh, to them so they can you know. You know, use it and, and, and execute on those those business goals. So, um, and, and that's you know the same you know across you know the entire spectrum, right? I think the the key in many cases is to develop that deep understanding of what the organization actually needs. You know, and, and to give you a, an example, right? Um, you know, you know, very often you know within healthcare people talk about uh, you know using AI for diagnosis, right? Uh, or or using AI to uh, you know understand x-rays right and, and help doctors and so on and so forth uh and we've been uh as an industry you know we've been uh, uh, uh we've seen people trying to apply that technology for for many years and, and most of it hasn't really come to fruition and become available in the clinic and i think the, the problem is that that's not necessarily a 
an issue that provider organizations want to solve right away or that they feel as as critical right like you know when when you talk with a with a hospital chain you know they don't come and say well you know the real problem that we're trying to solve right now is we want to uh, improve the ability of our physicians to diagnose uh patients that's just not something that necessarily come up right you know as organizations you know they have all the problems right they need to cut costs they need to alleviate uh physician burnout um they need to be able to uh uh, you know, ensure, you know, a certain, you know, level of, 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 of quality, right? Like they need to be able to leverage the data that they have in, in, in EHRs effectively, right? They want to uh, optimize processes and so on and so forth, right? They're not necessarily as concerned about, you know, the quality of diagnosis, for example. So, um, you know, without having that, the deep understanding of what uh, a customer, you know, may want, you know, it's very hard to, uh, you know, drive technology projects. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, that really resonates and matches so much of my What got you interested in healthcare and how did you start working with healthcare customers specifically? Yeah, so on the one hand, healthcare is especially interesting because the you know, you know, on one way or another, we're all uh, we're all patients, uh, right? Or we're all customers of healthcare, right? You know, maybe maybe yeah. not right now, but but at some point in our lives. Um, on the other hand, uh, you know, I think like a lot of people that are attracted to healthcare, you know, there was you know a, a family member, uh, you know, uh, a, a, you know, in some somebody in my family, you know, got diagnosed with cancer, and that was a, a frustrating episode, just not being able to. To do anything right um so i i started to become interested in not just healthcare but but you know health in general uh and longevity and uh, and drug discovery and uh and the entire world of uh using technology to to improve quality of life um so one way to to try to contribute to the field or to try to um continue learning uh, was uh, working with healthcare customers. I'm, I'm lucky that in my role, I have a little bit of flexibility as to which customers or which specific industries I want to spend my time on. And I think healthcare was just more meaningful than what I was doing before. Uh, I mean, and to be clear, you know, before, before healthcare, I was working with uh, video game developers, uh, which is great. I, you know, I really enjoy the industry. I, I, I you know, I have, you know, a lot of friends, you know, who who are or were video game developers and, uh, and it's fantastic, but I think it's not as meaningful uh, as actually helping people, you know, save lives. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, what, what do you think is the current state of technology adoption in healthcare? What are you seeing? So I'll start with technology first, because I think that even might be a challenge and then then yeah. the second question is, what does the adoption of AI look like in healthcare? Yes. So healthcare is so full of contrasts, right? On the one hand, you know, there have been scientific discoveries that are absolutely mind-boggling, uh, mind like, like, you know, things that, you know, just a few years ago, you would have thought they were science fiction. You know, I, you know when I talk with somebody, I remember when I was learning myself about um, CAR T cell therapies, for example, right? Like these are chimeric antigen receptor T cell therapies. So they're basically uh, immune cells that are taken out of uh, a cancer patient. They are 
re-engineer genetically to add uh, a specific protein that that makes the cell more effective against a, a cancer, right? So we would sequence the 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 genome of the cancer cells. We would uh, come up with a with a uh, basically a uh, a toll-like uh, receptor, which is a protein in the surface of the cell that would bind to that cancer cell. And then we engineer the immune cell to express that protein. And then we basically grow those cells and then we inject them back into the person. And uh, and those genetically engineered immune cells, then they go and kill the cancer. Uh, and in many cases, we have cancers that were essentially death sentences. Um, like there was just nothing that could be done. And now with these therapies, we can go and, and cure those cancers completely. It's, it's absolutely astonishing, you know, the kinds of things that can be done. On the other hand, you have people, uh, you know, faxing medical records, uh, you know, between one hospital and another, right? Or like you go to the hospital because you want to check your MRI and they give you a CD because there's no capability of, you know, sending you a file, right? Or uploading it anyway. So there are a lot of contrasts like that. I would say in order to understand the, the, the state of, uh, of technology within healthcare, it's, it's important to understand what are the, the different incentives that organizations have uh, and, and what really matters to them. So for example, for a hospital, whether you can take the record, your medical record with you or not, is not an important technological question, right? The hospital, you know, wants you to keep coming uh, to to it as an organization and as a business, right? So they're not necessarily interested in enabling easy data transfer between their systems and, and the hospital system and the, and, the, and the EHR system of another hospital, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so unfortunately, a lot of the economics of healthcare uh, and life sciences kind of determines, you know, how, how technology is leveraged. Um, I think... Uh, you know, one of the really interesting things, you know, that, that is happening over the past few years, uh, you know, with the development of generative AI and large language models is that now we have tools that can help overcome some of the technology limitations in healthcare, right? So, for example, things that, that have not been developed over many years because there was no economic incentive, like developing APIs that enable uh, data exchange between organizations, now can be solved by leveraging some of this, uh, some of this, uh, you know, AI systems that can understand, you know, unstructured data, for example, instead of forcing us to go through the traditional route of, of structuring the data, putting in databases, you know, putting APIs in front of them and then connecting between different systems using APIs. For into the adoption of, of AI for healthcare, you mentioned mm-hmm. generative AI. Tell me a little bit more about what are those specific use cases that are really promising and where are where is the industry in adopting them? I mean, it's probably new. All of this stuff is new for for everyone. But what does it look like and what are the opportunities? How do you think it's going to pan out over time? Um, so I would say uh, things will probably move slower uh, than, than we would hope. Uh, and they're going to take longer than, than we wish it would. Um, I, I would say that's, that's probably a safe bet uh, as with anything else in in healthcare. So when when you talk with people about the potential of technology within healthcare, I think one of the things that everybody is excited about is this idea of, you know, an AI doctor, right? Like you go and you chat with this, you know, 
with this system, you know, like a, a chat GPT or a BART or, or whatever, and then you tell it your symptoms and then it makes the diagnosis and then it gets it right and, and so on and so forth. I think that vision, um, as compelling as it is, is probably not going to happen anytime soon for a variety of different things, right? Um, uh, including, for example, you know, uh, uh, legal, you know, issues, right? Like, you know, what happens if an AI system makes a diagnosis and makes it wrong, right? Like who's actually responsible for that? I think a lot of those questions have not been answered and will probably not be answered for many years. On the other hand, there are so many tasks in healthcare that are uh, administrative or, or, you know, in a way do not require the, 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 the qualifications that a doctor, uh, that a physician requires. So I think we will probably start to see technology being used in those tasks much earlier than we will see it in tasks like diagnosis. Uh, and I think we will also see AI systems complementing uh, physicians and complementing, you know, other medical specialists uh, without replacing them, uh, you know, much earlier than we'll see fully automated systems. So for example, you know, one thing that best uh, hospitals care about is whether a patient shows up for that appointment or not. You know, uh, like hospitals actually lose, you know, significant amounts of money when when patients schedule appointments and then they don't show up. Uh, so we're probably going to see systems like, uh, you know, uh, 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 you know, automatically making calls to people to confirm their appointments and, and, and talking with them and rescheduling appointments where they don't work and, and, and so on and so forth, right? Uh, you know, much more so than, you know, like, I guess, you know, dumb, you know, text reminders or whatever, right? And I think text reminders and emails and so on and so forth work well, but it's not the same thing as, as uh, some system, you know, calling, you know, rescheduling if it has to, you know, adjusting, you know, adjusting the schedule and so on and so forth. Um, we are, uh, we're probably going to see uh, extensive use of, of AI, including generative AI systems in processing medical data to make it easier to uh, uh, to extract the relevant information so that a physician can look at it uh, briefly instead of spending hours just processing, just going through it. We are going to see uh, generative AI systems that um, create uh, first drafts of medical information, say, you know, processing uh, uh, results from a, from a, a lab uh, test, for example, and then writing a summary, which then a physician can go and review and confirm whether it's right or not. Um, because a lot of those tasks help optimize the time of the physicians, right? Which is, you know, one of the main cost drivers uh, for healthcare. So I think uh, a lot of those things are probably going to start becoming, you know, more and more prevalent as soon as, you know, the, the industry as a whole can overcome the you know, the, the constraints that limit, you know, doing some of those things, you know, regulation and and, and, and availi uh, availability of, of, of professionals that can implement, you know, this type of technologies and so on and so forth. Um, but I think the, uh, you know, uh, you know, this magical vision, right, of an AI system, you know, taking care of somebody, that that is not going to happen anytime soon. One area that I'm really interested in that's very relevant to healthcare, something I worked on at uh, Meta AI is privacy. Right. Mm -hmm. So AI privacy, extremely relevant when you uh, apply it to healthcare. So I, I'm wondering if you saw, um, and it's, I think it's a challenge as well for, uh, for building mm -hmm. AI for healthcare. I'm, I'm wondering if there's some interesting things you saw there 
um, where you had to uh, apply novel AI privacy techniques? Like, what are the kinds of things you might have run into? Yeah, um, so I'm not a I'm not a privacy expert, <laughs> so uh, take what I say with with a grain of salt. Um, in healthcare, uh, privacy, of course, is, is top of mind, right? Because there are very uh, strict regulations uh, as to whether uh, personal health information can be shared or not, and with whom it can be shared, and, and what happens if that information is somehow leaked, right? Uh, which is, of course, you know, HIPAA, right? And, you know, we've all, you know, at one point or another signed some HIPAA form when we go to, you know, some some hospital or, or, or uh, you know, or doctor's office or whatnot. Um, so this is something that is, on the one hand, a positive because everybody is aware of the of the constraints. On the other hand, it slows down progress in some way because, yeah. you know, everything just takes forever, right, to get approval and, and to make sure that, that things are done properly. Uh, and, and sometimes things take um, longer than 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 they than they should. Any are there um, any AI privacy technologies that like you're kind of your favorite <laughs> or that you saw were really necessary yeah. i have a couple i would back say my yeah yeah uh, so the the one thing that i've seen uh being very useful is uh synthetic data right so uh -huh. basically trying to sidestep the privacy issues of of phi completely and generate data that looks like it's almost real uh even if not quite so being able to generate synthetic data, I think, is is very, very useful for a lot of different things. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. So in the case of uh, EHR records, you know, I think synthetic data is very, very useful uh, because you can get data that essentially looks like real uh, and uh, and only an expert, you know, uh, you know, somebody that has seen, you know, thousands of EHR uh, charts would, would be able to say, well, yeah, this is this is off, right? Or this was actually, you know, made up. Um, in in other cases, it's really hard to do. So, for example, in the life sciences side of the world, synthetic data just you know it's it's, it's just not as not as not as useful, uh, depending on on the specific problem that one wants to solve. Um, so, you know, I think that is a that is a very interesting aspect, and, and our ability to generate better synthetic data is getting better. Um, I would say uh, federated learning is also super interesting, and I've seen people do really interesting things uh, in a federated way. But like, say, different uh, you know different hospitals or different organizations will share part of the data, and we train machine learning models that train that learn from from the overall data set, but without necessarily having to share uh, their own data. Uh, but I'm also not an expert on federated learning, so I, I, I see it. I appreciate. It. I think it's it's interesting, right? But uh, yeah, uh, yeah. That was one. Federated learning was one of the big bets for one of the for the AI privacy team that I I led at Meta. Um, the other the other thing we worked on was I, I was hoping I'd hear you say differential privacy because like there, mm -hmm. there's one thing I I I. Uh, which of course differential privacy is used with federated learning. <laughs> um, and there's like some really interesting things that happen there where you have to like, you might take a cost of accuracy. You might have to do like a trade-off of accuracy with, um, yep. with privacy and so on. But anyway, um, the one thing I learned that was really interesting from, you know, it, it is actually that anonymized data is not really mm -hmm. anonymized and how easy mm -hmm. it is to de-anonymize yeah. it. But yeah, healthcare was always sort of 
like the first thing that pops up when you when you go and you do a deep dive into AI privacy, it's like the one specific vertical where it's super applicable. So um, yeah, I'm sure we'll see more there. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's of course like everybody can imagine the risks, right? A lot of healthcare information is as private as it possibly get, right? And it would have uh, significant repercussions, right, in, in people's you know lives and 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 families and jobs and so on and so forth. Um, uh, yeah, I, in my mind, you know, that is, I think, a, a good rationale for trying to use synthetic data as much as possible, right? Where we're basically sidestepping, you know, all the all the potential problems. Yeah. So th this brings me to an interesting point that you wrote about in like, an, you wrote an article on AlphaFold. Um, and for anyone that doesn't know, AlphaFold is a deep learning system which approximates protein shapes. Uh, it was a mm -hmm. big, big breakthrough. And I think Google has um, a, like a lot of work uh, in this area as well. Um, but I think that the thing that struck me was, and maybe this is this is your hot take. I'll be looking for hot takes. I want to hear your your sure. healthcare hot hot takes. With, but you, one of the things you mentioned is we will not see significant development in personalized drug development because there's yes. not enough data. So, yes. So I think that is a very yeah, interesting and you very interesting point, and you touch on a lot of things, right? So AlphaFold, in my mind, is one of the um, uh, one of the most significant uh, achievements of artificial intelligence in in healthcare and life sciences as a whole, right? I think it was it was truly groundbreaking. Um, Explain and it was why, and, it, and can you break yes. it down for like why that is why? Yes. Um, so um, for many decades, right? You know, this is uh, you know something that goes back you know fifty, sixty years. Um, we've uh, the scientific community understood that there is a relationship between the shape of a protein and the function that that protein has. So, uh, you know, an enzyme, for example, enzymes are proteins that uh, kind of help uh, assemble or disassemble other components. So in, in an enzyme, you would have a, a pocket, right, or, or, or an area of that protein where, you know, different components would, would join in, and then that enzyme, you know, maybe gets energy from ATP and then, you know, joins those two components together, and that's, you know, what, what assembles another macroprotein, right, uh, or another macromolecule. So the, uh, the function of that protein is what determines its, uh, I mean, the shape of that protein is what determines its function. Now, for uh, for many years, there were a lot of different experimental techniques that were used to discover those shapes. You know, things like uh, X-ray crystallography and, and, and nuclear magnetic resonance and a lot of other experimental methods. Uh, but those experimental methods have, you know, limitations, right? And, and in some cases, it's very hard to use an experimental method for example, in, in proteins that are intrinsically disordered, like um, you know, many proteins that happen to be in, in the surface of, uh, of, uh, of different cells, right? like surface of neurons, for example. Uh, so uh, what AlphaFold does is it takes uh, a lot of data that had already been assembled over many decades, you know, stored in a, in a database of proteins, it's called PDB, and the, the Google DeepMind team built a machine learning model that takes a sequence uh, of a protein and predicts the shape. And the quality of that prediction is really, really good. So 
we had models before that that attempted to do the same thing, but they were not really great. Sometimes they would work, sometimes they wouldn't, and we wouldn't really know very well, you know, when they wouldn't work. Um, AlphaFold is much, much better, like significantly better to a point where it can be used for real world problems um, when we don't have an experimental structure. So um, in that sense, it's, uh, uh, you know, in a way solving a problem that had been open for many decades, right? So, so just as a scientific achievement, I think it was very significant. Now, of course, you know, there are other ways where you could start applying this same principle. Like, for example, when somebody has a genetic mutation, you know, when when you're getting experimentally a structure for a protein, that is a process that costs a lot of money and takes a lot of time. Uh, so, for example, if somebody has a, a disease that has genetic origin that is caused by a mutation, you know, I don't think anybody you know, would, would go on and think, well, you know, let's try to isolate this specific protein and, and, and somehow get the structure and try to understand, you know, what kind of, you know, drug we would be able to develop for it. Like that process would take years and it would be very complicated to do and it wouldn't be economically feasible in the context of healthcare. But now if you have some kind of uh, synthetic model or a synthetic process or, or a process that you can run entirely within a computer where you can get somebody's, uh, you know, DNA uh, and and understand the effect of those mutations in the shape of the proteins for that specific individual, you know, that kind of opens up the door for a more personalized way of, of, uh, uh, of doing treatments for that person. And that may not be developing new drugs, which I think is where, where you were going with the second part of the question. I think that is probably still going very hard, but it could be trying to predict whether the existing drugs would work for that person or not. Mm. So, for example, uh, in the case of cancer, I think this is something that, that many people have started to explore already. If we know what specific mutations happen in cancer cells for one person, and we know how the structure changes, we can see if, you know, let's imagine that we have, you know, several hundred uh, chemotherapy drugs approved, we could, in the computer, try to predict which specific chemotherapy drugs would bind better to this mutated protein that this person has. And then instead of, you know, giving, a, you know, a hundred different drugs or trying one after another, we could use that specific uh, chemotherapy drug for that specific cancer for that specific person, right? Which would obviously be much more effective than the, you know, shotgun approach, right, that, that we've been using so far. But I think, just from that perspective, I think it's, it's incredibly interesting. Now, what I think is going to be a little bit harder is to go from this ability to to sequence a genome uh, of a person and to sequence, you know, cancer cells and so on and so forth, and, and to come up with uh, with the structure of those proteins and how they interact and so on and so forth. I don't think we will get to a point where we will um, develop entire new drugs just for that person. And the problem for that is the, the regulatory and the approval processes don't really enable that, right? You know, it's really, really hard to go through, you know, clinical trials and, and so on and so forth and to convince the regulatory authorities that, that a specific process, you know, works for, for that problem. So I think that um, that aspect of personalized medicine is, is probably not going to happen for many years, uh, but there are a lot of things that we can do even without going to that, to that level. Got it. So let me make sure I understand this. It sounds like then what we can do is better target the current therapies for specific mm -hmm. people uh, versus developing specific drugs for specific people. So yeah, that level exactly. of personalization is 
not <laughs> we're not near near that that sort of sophistication um yeah i think yeah, that, yeah, that's huge. that would be amazing um yeah and and to be to to add some context right like we know now that there are many many drugs that just don't work for a lot of people right like uh i think uh i think there was some some statistics that that folks have computed over the past few years were um it, your average fda approved drug works for uh I think 30% of the patients that it's applied to, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you know, something very, very low. Like you normally think, well, you know, if I have a drug that is already approved, it should work for like, you know, 90, 95% of the people, right? Uh, it's actually, you know, very, very far from that, right? Like your average, you know, uh, approved drug actually doesn't work for most of the people that uh, that we give it to, uh, which is why, of course, you know, we have to try many different things and we have a lot of different drugs for, for different people, right? Another area you're really passionate about is longevity. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think there's there's a couple of things I'd love to learn about. What are some breakthroughs? I mean, uh, that you're excited about for longevity. Um, so that are uh, so longevity is an incredibly interesting field, right? You know, also for you know similar to what we talked about before. I think you know everybody is interested in. Uh, living a long and healthy life, right, as much as possible, right? So I think, you know, one way or another, you know, I would, all of us should be interested in, in, in how we can maximize our own longevity. Um, and up until a couple of decades ago, it was very hard to uh, to do something about it. Like our understanding of the drivers of aging was very incomplete. Now, there have been several discoveries over the past you know 10 15 years that that are really exciting because they uh they kind of show us how we can actually start tweaking things uh to live longer uh so for example you know one of the things that that we have known for a while and, and this is something that you know peter atia for example you know was talking about in, in his book and, and many other people you know have been talking about for a while is uh, rapamycin uh, rapamycin is a drug that was discovered uh, several decades ago, uh, it was uh, an immunosuppressor, uh, an antifungal, you know, it was used in um, uh, organ transplants. And uh, uh, my understanding is it was not especially good uh, immunosuppressant, but, uh, but it turns out that when we started giving rapamycin to a variety of different species, those species live longer. And that effect is most pronounced in shorter lived species than it is in longer lived species. So you could give rapamycin to a worm, for example, and it would live twice as long. And you would give it to flies and they may live, you know, 50% longer. Then you give it to mice and then the mice lives 15% longer. All other things being equal, right? So no change in the diet, no change anywhere else in, 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 you know, the conditions of that animal, except that it's just taking this drug a regular intervals throughout their life. Um, even, I think, in in non-human primates, you know, people have been, you know, effectively using rapamycin to extend lifespan. So because it, the effect of rapamycin seems to be conserved across all these different species, I think there's a very strong suspicion that it would help to extend lifespan in humans as well. Uh, even though nobody has done a clinical trial for it yet, uh, but I think there's, there's very substantial evidence. Another thing that we discovered recently was senolytics, right? So one thing that, that happens in, in human cells is that in order to prevent 
cancer from developing, when cells detect that there may have been dangerous mutations, they enter a state in which they stop reproducing, uh, which is the state of senescence. And then, um, you know, this is, this is good, right? Because that cell that becomes senescent does not become cancerous, but it's also not good in the sense that the cell is a little bit in a zombie state. So it secretes, you know, substances that are not good. It kind of creates inflammation and so on and so forth. So about 15 years ago, uh, there was a team actually at the Mayo Clinic that, that discovered substances that selectively kill senescent cells. Uh, so they eliminate the, the noxious effect of those senescent cells. Those substances are senolytics. So they gave a combination of them, you know, uh, they were uh, the satinil and crescetin, and that combination would remove those senescent cells. So again, like you would take these mice and you compare them with, with a control group, uh, and then you give the the a group of mice uh, a senolytic. I think it was, you know, once a month, right? Uh, which would be the equivalent of like, you know, once every, I don't know, six months or a year for humans. And then those mice would live 10 to 15% longer. Everything else was exactly the same, uh, but now because you're removing those senescent cells regularly, the mice lives longer. So I think that is also very, very exciting, right? And, and people have been using senolytics in other species as well. Uh, the, the last thing that, uh, that happened over the past, uh, you know, decades. I mean, there were many other things, but the last thing that I would say is, is interesting, I think, you know, broadly, is the ability to partially reprogram cells. So, uh, you know, cell reprogramming in a way is something that occurs naturally, right? So when, uh, you know, when, when somebody, you know, gets pregnant, right? Uh, you know, when a, 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 you know, female human, you know, gets pregnant, the the, the egg, right, is is uh, is a cell that has a certain age, right? You know, that cell, you know, was formed, you know, many years ago, right? So it has a certain age. And then when uh, uh, when that cell starts become a, a, an embryo, right, you know, there is a process that happens in which that cell, which was older, it may have had, you know, many years, suddenly becomes younger, right? The age goes down and then, you know, the, you know, the embryo grows and then, you know, you know, a baby, you know, forms and so on and so forth, right? So... That, that is a process of rejuvenation, uh, but that is a process of, of you know, uh, you know, totipotent or, uh, you know, or, 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 or full rejuvenation in the sense that, you know, the cell stops being a, an egg and it becomes an embryo. Now, what we found out, you know, many years ago is that you could, uh, and this was done by, um, uh, by a team in, in Japan, uh, they discovered that you could, uh, so the, 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 the rejuvenation process, you know, was done by a team in Japan and there were, you know, other teams, you know, Alejandro Campo and others that discovered that this process could be done on a partial level. So you could take a cell and uh, add some chemicals to it that would, in a way, uh, remove some of the changes that happen on that cell over time as it ages, but without necessarily changing the identity of the cell. Right. Mm -hmm. So in, in humans, you know, you could inject, you know, have the uh, human take these chemicals and then have the cells rejuvenate, but then that wouldn't be good, right? Like you want your, your skin cell to continue being skin. You want your bone cell to continue being bone, right? So you can't just do total rejuvenation in human cells. But if you could partially rejuvenate those cells so that they somehow become younger, uh, but while keeping the identity, you know, that would, in, in theory, 
eliminate a lot of the problems that happens as we try to you know, eliminate some of the damage that accumulates, uh, eliminate some of the you know methylation or other you know uh, you know uh, 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 transcription modifications that happen in the genome you know as the cell you know ages and so on and so forth. So now there is uh, very substantial funding that is going basically into discovering how these partial reprogramming mechanisms can be used in order to regenerate cells of people that are, you know, already alive, right? So Altos Labs, for example, was was a company that was formed a couple of years ago, right? You know, they had you know, several billion dollars of funding. Uh, they are doing research in this space, RetroBio and, and, and many others, right, have been looking at, you know, can these methods of partial rejuvenation be actually used to get our cells uh, become younger again? That is fascinating. I'm going to go read up on it. Now, the question that everybody wants to know, um, what are your personal longevity hacks? Like, are there any things that you do on a regular basis? Yes. So I, I actually, uh, so it's funny that you mentioned, I actually wrote a little article uh, not long ago with my own uh, uh, longevity protocol, which is not super sophisticated, right? Like there's, there's people out there who are spending, you know, lots and lots of money doing this. Um, I think, uh, Brian Johnson, right? You know, the name of, of this, you know, tech entrepreneur, right? That, that yeah. supposedly oh, yeah. is spending a couple million a year, you know, trying to do, uh, you Notorious. know, trying to get himself yeah, to yeah. be younger. Uh, I think it's possible to get like 80, 90% of the benefit for much lower costs. So, um, uh, in my mind, you know, the fundamentals of longevity are, you know, the same fundamentals of, of, uh, health, right? So, you know, good diet, uh, you know, good nutrition, you know, proper sleep and so on and so forth, you know, avoiding all sorts of, you know, cancerogenous, you know, foods and habits and so on and so forth. Right. So a lot of that is, is the same, you know, basic stuff that, that we, you know, we've, many of us, you know, have heard about for many years. Right. Um, I would say beyond that, um, there are, um, there are a lot of things that we can start doing to optimize our own, you know, our own biochemistry, right? So um, uh, I, I think intermittent fasting, for example, is, is very useful. Um, I think uh, that it's maybe a little bit of evidence to start, you know, taking some of those, uh, you know, substances that could be senolytics, right? You know, not as uh, not as powerful as the, the satin even carcetinin combination, but um, but uh, curcumin, for example, you know, fisetine, right? Like, you know, there's a little bit of evidence that this, uh, this uh, senolytics actually you know, do something useful in other species, um, even though, again, nobody has done clinical trials in, in humans. And, uh, and uh, you know, for folks that want to go a little bit beyond that, you know, I think there's already quite a bit of, uh, of a community of people that are taking rapamycin, right? So I think that is, uh, you know, that is interesting to consider as well, right? But of course, it's a prescription medicine, right? So, right. you know, folks need to, you know, coordinate with, with their physician and all that. We will find and link to your article. Um, on my end, I, I keep a very simple, I try to eat, eat good food. I try to cook my own food as much as possible, yeah. sleep and get at least three hours of exercise per week. Like that's it. <laughs> that's and, great, uh, yeah. But uh, yeah, no, I, I always wanna learn more. Um, let's, let's take it in a totally different direction. Um, there are a lot of people who work either in tech or in healthcare um, and are mm -hmm. interested in crossing over and combining their expertise in one area with another. So for example, I just had a doctor friend who really wants to learn more about AI. Um, yep. How does he combine his medical experience with technology, which is not his area of yep. expertise, but there's so much opportunity there or the other way around. What if you're a tech person 
and you want to learn more about how you can apply your skills to healthcare, what would you suggest to those types of professionals? Like how, how do we cross boundaries? Because there's, even within technology, people speak different languages depending on what they work on or whether or not they work on research versus product. Like research <laughs> famously has its own language. Um, sometimes they don't talk to anyone <laughs> else, which is my complaint. Um, but yeah, like what would you suggest to, to those professionals who want to combine these two fields? Well, I, I think it depends on, on, on the specific skills, right? But, you know, thankfully... Now we live in a world where it's a lot easier to find other people that are working on the same, you know, problems that we're interested in, right? So mm -hmm. I would say a physician, for example, you could go and, and, and find, you know, technology companies that may be working on some of these problems and, and think if, if it's possible to set up a collaboration or whatnot. Um, another thing that is very interesting is that, you know, much of the technology that, that we have today is becoming easier to use, right? So like large language models, for example, you know, are, arguably much easier to use than traditional AI models, right? So anybody can go and, you know, Bart or ChatGPT or whatever and, and start playing with it, right? Or, or write a few, you know, maybe, you know, use, you know, use the, the model to write a script that, you know, leverages, you know, some API that, that you know, kind of, you know, you know, tries to, uh, you know, understand medical information or whatever, right? So I think a lot of those things um, are becoming easier today than they were, you know, just four or five years ago. And then apart from that, I think, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's always useful to keep, uh, keep an eye on what technology is going, right? Because, you know, we don't know what kind of new products would be available, right? In the future that, that, that may actually change the way that people, you know, go about their day to day, right? In, in that profession. Uh, but I mean, all in all, I think, you know, AI has, has advanced so much, right? And has become so much easier to use, right? That I think, you know, pretty much everybody should should have a little, a, at least a, a basic understanding of what kinds of things are possible right now. Awesome. Um, I have another personal question for you. Uh, what advice would you give yourself, like a younger version of yourself from, from 20 years ago? Yeah, that one's hard. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I, I don't know if there's something that would come top of mind. Uh, I mean, if I could go back in time, I would say, you know, just, you know, you know, buy stocks and, you know, companies, you know, <laughs> yeah. A or B or whatever. Right. And then, you know, I, I, I would, I would be retired by now, uh, or, or doing something else, you know, I wouldn't be working. Um, uh, I think, uh, I was very fortunate that, that I chose to, um, to work in the technology field. I think this, this past couple of decades have been definitely the, the time of, you know, technology, right? Technology companies have done really well. I've been very lucky to work on really interesting things. Um, you know, of course, you know, you know, nothing is, nothing is perfect, right? But, but I would say I've, uh, I've been very, very fortunate to be able to do that. Uh, but if I would say, you know, uh, I'll answer a different question, right? You know, so if I was talking with somebody that was, you know, 17 or 18 years old, I would say, I would think very carefully about, um, uh, joining the, the technology field as opposed to doing something else, right? I think, you know, for a lot of people that, you know, that may be, um, you know, thinking about, you know, studying, you know, law, right? You know, we don't know how much of, of law is going to be automated, in, you know, in years to come, right? For somebody that may be studying marketing, right? You know, and maybe we reach a point where, you know, most of marketing is just, you know, done by machines, right? So I, I would be very careful about, what kind of disruptions may happen in specific industries over the next few years, right? So I think, you know, 
if I could, you know, give advice to somebody that is now, you know, 16 or 17 years old, or, you know, maybe thinking about going to college, I would, I would, you know, strongly encourage to look at technology and, and, and think about whether that would be a good career. Well, as somebody who also majored in math, of course, I don't have a doctorate. I'd say study math. <laughs> if nothing else, uh, you know, it, it trains the mind, which is always useful, critical thinking skills. Um, so what are some things you're excited about, uh, whether they are, um, you know, business opportunities, product opportunities, what's next for you? What are you excited about and what's next? Definitely. Um, so, um, lots of things, <laughs> I mean, you know, there's so much, uh, there are so many exciting things happening, even just within healthcare and life sciences. So, um, I am personally very, very excited about the potential of AI and, and large language models to help us find new drugs. Um, I think that is a that is an amazing opportunity. Uh, being able to to use some of these methods that have been coming up in the past few years, uh, you know, plus you know, you know, whole genome sequencing, plus you know, the ability to understand medical literature, you know, by large language models and so on and so forth, to automate uh, or to make you know, maybe not even fully automated, but to make the, the process of drug discovery easier or more powerful, I think that is incredibly exciting. Um, it's incredibly exciting because uh, there are so many diseases for which we don't have any drugs, right? Uh, and, and in particular for longevity, you know, there are there is a, an enormous amount of opportunity to, to tackle different aspects of it. Uh, and... Um, the, the limiting factor in, in how much we can do is going to be, uh, you know, how many new molecules we can come up with, you know, to do the kinds of things that we want to do, the kinds of manipulations that we want to do. Um, so, uh, so to me, that is, that is probably the, the most interesting right now, but, uh, uh, but there's a whole host of other things that are happening, right? You know, from, you know, being able to, uh, uh, to process information automatically, right? Uh, which makes, uh, you know, for example, makes healthcare more more affordable uh, or more accessible to a lot of people who traditionally haven't had that opportunity um, to, you know, reducing waste, right? Lowering costs, right? Uh, you know, and, and, and so on and so forth. Um, I think we're kind of still at the beginning of this generative AI world. And it's, it's hard to say, you know, what is going to be, you know, more exciting or less exciting, right? Uh, I think at some point uh, we're going to, we'll be able to figure out how to go from really good, interesting technology to actual products that save time uh, and, and help people in their day-to-day. -day. Uh, so I think that's going to be, you know, an enormous amount of opportunities there as well, right? Um, so personally, I'm I'm interested in longevity. Uh, I'm interested in, in what kinds of things can be done from the perspective of technology and AI to help find new drugs and help drive uh, further work on longevity. Um, but uh, you know, it's a you know we live in really really interesting times, right? So so there's definitely a lot of you know exciting stuff happening out there. Yeah, indeed. No, I think it's it's incredible the pace of innovation that we are seeing now, and it's just a, it doesn't stop. It's just going course, faster. Yeah. It's just so difficult to keep up with it. Um, uh, but yeah, I, I think it's an amazing time. Um, thank you so much, Javier. This has been an amazing conversation. I learned a lot and I can't wait to see what you do next. Thank you. 
Thank you so much, Natalia. It was uh, it was my pleasure. You know, thank you for for all these interesting uh, questions and an interesting and exciting conversation. So I, I enjoyed it very much. All right. Take care, Javier. You too.